Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily represent those of any organization including one generation away. America is free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com, going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. The media is all systems go in bringing us the latest news from the Ukraine-Russia conflict. All well and good, we might think. It is, after all, an opportunity for the fourth estate to regain some of its lost credibility. And yet, the not-so-subtle signs of spin and narrative are still there, permeating what should be straight and balanced news reportage. It seems the denizens of the popular press are unwilling to let a good crisis go to waste. And what better opportunity to take the former President Trump down a notch or two than to lay blame for gas prices and even the war in Ukraine at his feet. Welcome to Liberty Nation Radio, here on the Radio America Network. I'm your host, Mark Angelides. On today's show, we'll talk media spin, asymmetric warfare, sort fact from fiction on the gas price frenzy, and delve deep into the important legal cases of the week. I want to take a moment to say a special thank you to our listeners in Kinea, Alaska, on KSRM 920 AM and 92.5 FM. Thanks for being here. And remember, this show is proudly sponsored by LibertyNation.com, where you can access podcasts, breaking news, analysis, and a range of biting and brilliant shows to whet your appetite for freedom and your fondness for the great American constitution. Fear not. All of your present travails are the fault of either Vladimir Putin or, if that can't be spun, Donald J. Trump at least according to today's legacy media machine. If you were to believe the pages and protests of the Fourth Estate, former President Trump basically caused the whole Ukraine debacle single-handedly. And not a jot of blame should be directed at Joe Biden. Now, quite how the American press got themselves into this state of cognitive dissonance can be answered. And to do so, we're joined by Liberty Nation's very own editor-in-chief, Lisa K. Donner. Thanks for being here, Lisa. Hi, Mark. Good to be here. Now, Lisa, this sounds preposterous, but the, the media really is blaming both the war in Ukraine and the gas prices on President Trump. How do they square this circle? Well, you know, just yesterday, uh, Joe Biden said, well, the gas prices at the pump are Putin's fault. They're Russian's fault. And Putin's now price this- hike. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and Putin is the one on day one, January 20th, a year ago, you know, decided to uh, struck away the Keystone Pipeline with a pen. Um, you know, everything is, you know what bothers me, Mark, increasingly is everything seems to be someone else's fault. So the massive, inform, there's a massive misinformation campaign, I should say disinformation campaign against Trump over uh, the Ukraine-Russian war. And the media are solidly behind it. They They are dying to, pin this on Donald Trump. And it's kind of odd, just just the same way Biden was trying to pin the oil prices on Putin. It's almost as if the president of the United States is this feckless guy just 
blowing in the wind, you know, one way or another, depending on, you know, world happenings or on, or on a former president. It, it really is disturbing. Yeah, we had, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a tweet that uh, now President Biden uh, put out uh, a while back. And it was uh, that he would take responsibility for everything that happened because that was the job of a president. Now, it was clearly a, a knock at Donald Trump is, is how he meant it. But this is really, this, this old tweet has resurfaced on the internet and is doing the rounds for every uh, left-leaning news outlet puts, oh, it's Putin's fault, it's it's. Donald Trump's fault. And then people are just posting this screenshot of Joe Biden's uh, I take responsibility because that's what a president should do tweet. Um, now, let, let's play a little pop psychology 101, Lisa, because I know you do enjoy that. So what happened to the fourth estate and the left? Well, you know, it, it's really incredible because apparently uh, do, uh, Donald Trump went on he went on a podcast with Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. I believe it was a podcast. Anyway, Trump was sarcastic, as he often is, as many of us are. And, you know, he called the uh, Putin's moving into Ukraine pure genius. And, oh, that's wonderful. And, and of course, you know, as the media wants to do, they took it completely out of context. They're saying that, you know, Trump backs Putin. And, and it was one publication after another. And it occurred to me that, are we dealing with the psychological um, behavior known as projection? In other words, it's a defensive mechanism. You're not willing to say, this is my problem. So you put it on someone else. So this is really taking something that you know you were responsible for, but you project it onto someone else, your feelings, your thoughts, your tendencies, your fears, and you you know, what Biden and company and the, his advocacy media are doing are, are blaming Donald Trump for the Ukraine war. And it, it's really kind of crazy. I mean, everything from HuffPost to uh, Yahoo News, you know, there's headlines. Trump praises Putin's genius incursion into Ukraine. Trump praised Putin's genius for invading Ukraine. Mm. You know, it's headline yeah. after headline. It is. It, it's, it's so disingenuous as well that they, they won't grant him the right to be sarcastic. When, uh, when Peter Ducey uh, asked about, uh, is inflation uh, ahead of the midterms a good thing? And Joe Biden says, yeah, inflation, that's a brilliant idea. They knew he was being sarcastic because it was obvious, but they won't grant Trump that same, that same leeway to understand that he was being sarcastic also, which he very yeah. clearly was. And to make matters worse, what you, what you have is uh, the kind of, I call them fringe Republicans. There's a group called the Republican Account Accountability Project. I wrote about them. They bought ad time on Tucker Carlson's mm. show. And they spliced together all of this business to make it. And this is, of course, the Republican Accountability Project is run by people like Bill Kristol and, mm. you know, former workers for uh, Jeb Bush. But, you know. Anyway, they cleverly spliced together different comments by Trump to make it appear that he's praising Putin, you know, that, that uh, Donald Trump was Putin's best friend and right-hand man. It really is quite, kind of sick, and it reminds me of that comment that is often quoted. Uh, Vladimir Lenin said, uh, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, 
Is this just a, or really just a plot to try and give Joe Biden a pass on his own failings and with him, obviously, the rest of the administration? Or is it more to do with, do you think, crafting a narrative to crush the GOP come the November congressional elections? You know, unlike the left, I like to think that I have the ability to do two-step thinking. So let's just say it's both. You know, I... I that was the third option, yeah. <laughs> You know, why can't they be doing both? A good offense is a good defense kind of thing, or a good defense is a good offense, I guess is the saying. You know, uh, take Trump out as much as you can because they're terrified of him coming down the track in 2024, and they should be. I was just listening this morning, and someone was saying, gas prices are up 50% from last year. I mean, it's almost staggering to imagine how you can ruin a country this fast. Now, is this campaign against the 45th president, is it a way to try and convince folks that their vote for Biden was a smart move when the polling actually shows that uh, a large number of the voting public, they're suffering from what I like to call uh, Biden's buyer's remorse or caveat emptor Biden? Uh, you know, I, I have to think, Mark, that they're scrambling. I, I, you, the price of the, at the pumps have historically um, transferred to votes and how, you know, how, how well or how poorly a, a uh, candidate or a party is doing based on inflation, the economy, you know, he's got everything kind of going against him. And he's, he's really in a tight spot. So again, the, the blame game, I expect to hear in the next couple of days that, well, Americans are spoiled, you know, Europeans are used to paying $7 at the pump. You know, it's the same thing as big meat, you know, how dare us or and then it comes down to Exxon Mobil and Shell and everybody's trying to rip us off, you know. So, Lisa, final question for you. Where do you think this is going to finish? Well, I think this is unacceptable for the American public. You know, there are millions of Americans that are praying for Ukraine and we certainly don't want to see that country just decimated. At the same time, it's people who work paycheck to paycheck that are really going to be hit the hardest. You know, when it costs over $100 to fill up your tank of gas, when you go to the store and you buy your hamburger and your bacon and, and, and whatnot, it really starts to add up. And the midterms aren't that far away. I, I see a historic, and my husband, who is quite the analyst, he sees a historic um, problem for for the democrats and i i think he's probably on to something you can only play the blame game so long when you're president of the united states he doesn't have to be truman-esque with the buck stops here but he's got to take some responsibility for his actions lisa k donna thank you ever so much thanks mark later in the show we're delving deep into constitutional waters on our special talking liberty segment but up next, we sift fact from fiction on the rising gas prices. Don't go anywhere. For your freedom and your liberty, Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. No oil, no problem. Unless, of course, you're a business or a consumer who relies on the Texas tea to earn your paycheck. Russian supplies are refused by the Biden administration. And Jen Psaki insists that the problems are all to do with unwilling producers in the U.S., and naturally, all of this is echoed as gospel by the Biden-friendly Fourth Estate. But what's the truth? Well, to figure that out, we're joined by economist and author Andrew Moran, who's been 
tracking the developments of this black gold closer than anybody else. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thank you for having me. It's oil I need. It's oil you need. So, Andrew, Jen Psaki tells that this administration is not unfriendly to energy producers or the fo- of the fossil fuel variety. She tells us that 9,000 approved oil leases are just sat there idle. Now, this, this uh, sets my spidey sense tingling. Is the devil in the detail? There was a, a great quote from an energy, any energy analyst I spoke to yesterday. She said that uh, she's glad that Biden is sanctioning Russian oil like he, sh- he sanctioned U.S. oil. So I, thought, I thought that was pretty clever. But yeah, this whole 9,000 number, it's so misleading because on the surface, yeah, great. Okay, 9,000 leases. That's fantastic. But there's so many other factors to take into account to show that the, the, the war on energy is still apparent in this administration, whether before or during the energy crisis. A common issue that with lot of these leases that there's tremendous litigation challenges made by these environmental organizations. So many of these leases cannot be utilized during the legal process. Another one is that a lot of companies, they do horizontal drilling. So they'll need more than one lease or a couple of leases. So what they tend to do is that they, they merge an existing lease with a new lease. That creates all other you know bureaucratic challenges to get approval from the state and that requires more assessments. And then uh, you know the other issue too is that when you know the, the, the an oil and gas developer may get a lease, but then they find that okay, f- after all this time, the land isn't used. You can't drill properly because there's not enough resources under the ground. So that whole makes the whole lease useless. They waste so much time and money. Uh, then of course you also have the environmental assessment aspect of it. You saw that recently, uh, you know, Biden he suspended uh, federal land leasing because the the judge ruled that you know these these environmental assessments are too stringent on developers. So that's another aspect to it. And then one more, I mean, there's so many, but the, I think another major factor too is when it comes to capital investment. A lot of these active investors, uh, they're emboldened by the administration or they're at least encouraged by the administration not to invest in the oil and gas industry. It's Oil and gas has become, become dirty words right now. So a lot of these companies, when they try to drill, they can't get enough capital investment because people don't want to invest so much in, in fossil fuels anymore. They want to invest more in windmill turbines and solar panels. There was a recent study that came out uh, that said that uh, the windmill turbine industry is worth $100 billion over the next five years alone because of all this capital flowing into it. So this whole 9,000 leases, it sounds great on the surface, but then once you dive into all the all the nooks and crannies, most people will not do, they'll say, oh yeah, these old gas companies, they're just you know, rich fat cats who are greedy. You know? Yeah, I'm seeing that reaction across uh, all of social media today. Yeah, where, exactly. When everybody <laughs> criticizes uh, the oil situation, they say, Oh, but there's 9,000 leases available. <laughs> exactly. Um, it really has uh, the, the narrative, the spin has mm-hmm. permeated those who are yeah. willing to be fooled. There are some people actually betting on the market uh, that oil is going to reach $200 a barrel. Uh, now, I, I know that this is a bit of an outside bet, but I think 150 160 is it's almost a certainty, isn't it, Andrew? And what impact will something like that have on consumers price-wise at the pumps? And does it endanger business uh, on a broader scale? 
Yeah, it does. And when you talk about $150 a barrel, that, that's quite likely. $200, uh, there, there, there have been some options trading where they're speculating mm. it's $200 a barrel. So that that's highly, that's highly possible. The Kremlin says it could be $300 if you impose all these embargoes in Russia. So yeah, you know, there there has been some easing during the uh, March 9th trading session. But overall, I mean, there's, there's, still, there's still so many fundamentals to support higher crude prices. Now, when it comes to your question about how it will impact consumers, not all is going to impact, there's going to be pain of the pump, it's going to be your nightly dinner too, because of uh, higher energy prices also means higher uh, fertilizer costs because of fertilizer, urea, o- uh, ammonium, they're all byproducts of natural gas. Uh, and then when it comes to uh, the impact on business and the broader uh, the broader economy, I've been combing through a lot of uh, research notes and speaking to analysts and looking at all the, all the estimates. It seems almost certain that Wall Street is betting on either slowing economic growth, stagflation, or even a recession. Uh, you look at the um, the Atlanta the Atlanta Fed Bank, uh, the GDP now forecast. There, there's there the model shows zero percent growth in the first quarter. You look at the Fed Bank of Philadelphia, their GDP forecast says one point three percent in the first quarter. Uh, I, I was watching I was re- watching this interview the other day with uh, Bill Gross, and he was saying he expects uh, 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 contraction in the economy as we recession coming forward. And then some other guy even said we're in a recession now because other factors are showing recession, you know, manufacturing production, global GDP has been waning. So, so yeah, overall this jump in crude prices is going to really impact the economy moving forward, especially on the inflation front. So this is a very different story from what we're hearing from the White House and the mainstream media. And it, it seems to me, Andrew, that this spin machine has one singular purpose in mind, and that's to protect Joe Biden and his party until November 2022. Yeah, it's it's really really amazing. You watch CNN and or any other mainstream media channel, it's the exact same narrative. Oh, we're speaking to Americans who who are willing to pay higher prices to stop Putin. It's the same message across the media landscape. It's astounding. You know, one day I'm waiting to see CNN interview one of their own cameramen and say, "Oh my god, these gas prices are so high, but we have to do it to stop Putin." Just like they did in that protest after Trump won. But, you know, uh, everywhere you look CNN, a digital newspaper, they're all using this this the, the Biden message of uh, this is the Putin price hike. I mean, Biden really put that in the people's subconscious during uh, the March eighth uh, press conference, and Kelly Kelly uh, Kelly Ballard, Ballard reporting on that. And all these rich people, you know, George Takai, Stephen Colbert, they say, you know, we have to pay four dollar gallon, but you know what you can do? You can just buy an electric vehicle. That, that that's going to stop it, stop the pain from happening. And you know, and this is going to be repeated over and over and over again, heading into November. And one more thing, you know, the the talking point is that Biden is not responsible for these gasoline prices. But then I mentioned this earlier, they celebrate when there's a little a decrease in the price of gasoline. So they want their cake and eat it too. It's not his fault why prices are, are skyrocketing, but then it, we should celebrate him when prices are falling. So th- it's a psyops operation if you want to go all conspiratorial <laughs> on the general public when it comes to monitoring uh, gas prices. But yeah, when fall comes, I'm going to be glued and I'm going to spin my head watching all the economic fallacies being uh, uh, perpetrated by the, uh, the pen- people with a pension of mendacity. Yeah, it seems uh, buy an electric vehicle is the new let them eat cake or learn to code. Andrew Moran, thank you ever so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Liberty Nation Radio, heard across the Radio America network from our flagship station in the nation's capital, WWRC in Washington, D.C. Remember, you can tune in for Liberty Nation from 2 to 3 p.m. Sunday on KBKW 103.5 FM, 1450 AM, the talk of Grace Harbor. 
Down the line, we talk liberty with Scott Cassender discussing the cases that matter to your constitutional rights. But after this short break, we'll tackle asymmetric warfare at home and abroad. Stay tuned. America is free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com. Going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. Russian troops, tanks, rockets, boots on the ground. Well, we've seen the conventional aspects of warfare in Ukraine so far, but is there something more afoot? Is there another theater of war that is being ignored? And could it be that this other battleground has actually done more for the Ukrainian war effort than the traditional guns and bombs approach? Well, we're fortunate enough to be joined by our expert in all things military, former Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense Controller, Air Force pilot and author, Mr. Dave Patterson. Thanks for joining us today, Dave. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be with you. So, Dave, I think first we should outline what asymmetric warfare is and perhaps why it doesn't get the headlines that regular warfare so often enjoys. Well, I think that, put simply, it's where you have two competing forces, one with much greater firepower, people, and uh, cleverness against a much smaller and uh, less well-equipped country or, or group of people but those, that group of people uses the capability that they have uh, to great effect and, in fact, are able to uh, do much more against the greater power. And uh, perhaps a good example of that would be one that perhaps you don't think would be apt. But during the Revolutionary War... The Minutemen, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, you had... Uh, you had the, the British who lined up in nice, neat rows, and you had the, uh, <clears throat> the Minutemen who hid behind trees, terribly ungentlemanly, and yet they were very effective and, uh, and used what they had and what they knew, which was, uh, and, and eventually overcame a much superior force. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's the, the latest rule, isn't it? Never go toe-to-toe against the British because they've got more people, they've got more uh, firepower behind them, and it was a doomed strategy. So until they, they changed how the war was fought, it was an inevitable destruction if it were fought on the British terms. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here today. So it, it, it seems to me that in the case of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the use of media narratives, whether accurate or exaggerated, has been quite literally used to battle Vladimir Putin. As in the, the stories we see, the photographs, that they've almost rallied the world to Zelensky's cause. And this is a very effective type of uh, asymmetric war making. It's, it's made public pressure, corporate responsibility. All of these things come into play. So we're seeing uh, vast numbers of corporations closing their businesses in Russia. And this is putting pressure on him internally from his own people. What's your analysis? Well, I think you have two things at play here. First of all, you do have the economic pressure that is brought to bear by uh, corporations ceasing to do business with Russia. And and that's one dimension. And you have the other dimension, which has happened by, uh, by happenstance uh, or accident, as the media has taken charge of the narrative, 
you find that they have more than uh, adequately brought this David and Goliath approach to the war and have come very out definitely for uh, for the Ukrainians. And I mean, you just cannot uh, dismiss photos and video of all of the carnage and devastation and misery that uh, Putin's forces and soldiers have visited on Ukraine. I mean, it is a powerful image and it's uh, it's basically coalescing the world uh, in uh, in favor of Ukraine. Yeah, it's it's kind of brought in a response from everybody. So it's not just the the world leaders who have a vested interest in uh, perhaps keeping NATO uh, as a functioning force, but it's also involved people sat at home who are going through their social media feeds and they see these things. Uh, and that's crafting a public opinion. And as we know, politicians are, uh, they're, they're like Superman, but their, their kryptonite is public opinion. And, and that's the, the one thing they, and rightly so, fear. Uh, so it's kind of driving them uh, all, all towards a, a spear point against, against Vladimir Putin. And now uh, Putin himself, he's losing in this, uh, arena in this specific arena, he's becoming almost a pariah on the world stage, which surprises me because the former Soviet empire were masters of propaganda, and they they just can't seem to muster the same response in terms of what the media in the West has. What is, what's your take on this? Well, I think it goes to a, a very uh, a, a big miscalculation. Uh, on Putin's part and on his uh, his general staff's part, they believed that Ukraine would just roll over and play dead. They'd march right to Kiev, take over, install a puppet government, and life would be good. They would do this in two or three days, a week at the most. That has not turned out to be the case. There are a number of things that happened previously when Russia annexed Crimea illegally and came into the Donbass area. They saturated Ukraine and Crimea and Donbass with uh, all manner of uh, cyber attacks. And they put in uh, numbers of what they called little green men at the time to, to take away the confidence people had in their institutions. That didn't happen this time to any great extent. And because I think that they simply that Putin simply thought that uh, this would be an easy uh, an easy uh, undertaking, it proved not to be. So when uh, Putin moved in on uh, the Crimea and the Donbass region in the past, that was also a form of asymmetric warfare. Yes, uh, today the, the 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 catchphrase is hybrid, or in the United States, it's uh, gray zone warfare. Gray zone warfare. <laughs> Yeah. Now, um, let, let's switch topics here briefly, Dave. There's been a lot of talk about uh, airplanes, warplanes, and, and no-fly zones. Now, why is that when cooperation between allies seems to be the watchword? The U.S. position isn't either to provide planes or act as a conduit for planes or to back the idea of a no-fly zone. What's the thinking behind this? Well, I think there's uh, a realization that there's a great deal of risk involved here and that uh, I don't think that NATO or the United States truly understand what uh, Putin's reaction would be to a no-fly zone. No-fly zones are quite effective when you 
don't when you have complete supremacy of the skies. But when you have an adversary who is bent on not allowing you to have a no-fly zone, there's bound to be conflict. And even though some believe that you can set up a uh, a, a no-fly zone over specific areas for humanitarian relief and refugee uh, leaving the country, in when the uh, the battle is engaged, it's pretty hard to uh, realize who shot first, even though everybody agrees that uh, there will be no shooting in that no-fly zone. And to get the Russians to agree to that would be almost impossible. And you're looking at, for, you know, for want of another term, you're engaging in warfare. This is, this is war. And, uh, you know, it's worked in the past sometimes, like, for example, in the... Uh, uh, in Bosnia and in uh, Libya and no, most notably in, in Iraq when we had uh, Northern Watch and Southern Watch. Uh, but for every one of those patrols, 40 airplanes took to the skies in support. And that's, that's kind of a, a large aluminum cloud over Ukraine and uh, a target-rich environment for the Russians. And so regarding the planes that uh, some people within NATO seem so keen to provide to Ukraine by passing on the planes, now the U.S. doesn't want to get involved in this. And I think I can see why, but, but what's your take on it? Well, my take is that the United States and particularly the Biden administration has not been particularly clear in uh, how, where they stand and what they think about this. On the Sunday talk shows, you had Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State. It's saying, a green, oh, yes. yeah, it's oh, green yes. light. You know, yeah. the green, we, we've green-lighted uh, Poland providing the, uh, the, the MiG-29s. And then all of a sudden, when Poland had a different way of sending them to Ukraine, then now all bets are off, and uh, the United States is, is against this uh, initiative. You, when you have Ukraine, who well, by all accounts is an extremist, this kind of mismessaging is not helpful. It seems that this uh, whole conflict has been marred by mixed messaging from the start, unfortunately. Uh, however, the one message that is coming through is that uh, the people of the world do seem to be behind Ukraine. Dave Patterson, thank you ever so much. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be with you. Coming up after this short break. We're talking liberty with Scott Casenza, going through the major cases this week that affect your rights and your liberty. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. For your freedom and your liberty, Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. Ghislaine Maxwell back in court and a dastardly plan to scare lawyers into supporting left-leaning causes only. It's a swamp out there. But to help us navigate the murky legal waters, we're lucky to be joined by constitutional lawyer and host of the excellent Uprising podcast, Mr. Scott D. Casenza, Esquire. Welcome back, Scott. Thank you, Mark, and uh, it's good to be here. So, Scott, let's go through this bit by bit. Ghislaine Maxwell, is she going to get a new trial? Maybe. Um, I think if I was, this is a, th this is not a expert analysis, but, but. Yes, is my my guess. Um, All right, what are he, the grounds for that? He was in federal court uh, again this week because the juror, one of the jurors on her case, uh, said after the verdict in a comment to a, a media outlet that he had been uh, abused as a child, and he relayed that 
and use that experience to basically further her conviction to, to, to vote guilty on it and how it affected him. But he on this juror questionnaire said that he had not been uh, affected that you know, abused as a uh, previously. So he now says that uh, he sped past it. He was distracted. He was tired uh, and he actually asserted his right. Uh, against self-incrimination, and they had to give him immunity from prosecution for the crime of perjuring himself on the juror questionnaire in order to get him to testify this week in federal court about that questionnaire. In cases where this does happen, whether through uh, making misstatements or, or the other, um, is there often a retrial? Is there, a, is there like a betting average on when this does end up in a new trial and when it doesn't? I don't think that there's enough data to, to say, Mark, I certainly haven't seen any studies that that or have access to enough cases to have developed my own understanding of, of this. Um, but it's a pretty huge thing if a person, you know, it's not like it's not like he's I'm sure that the juror questionnaire included, for instance, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And let's say he had been convicted of like a DUI like 20 years ago or just some some possession of cocaine 15 years ago. It's hard to tie that directly to the outcome in the Jillian Maxwell criminal trial. Right. Because even though it's an important question to ask and answer correctly, and he should have answered it in my hypothetical correctly about that other thing, it's not the same thing as whether or not you've been victimized before. This is, again, a trial about Jelaine Maxwell, you know, basically aiding and abetting the victimization of people. So uh, because it's such a uh, an important question relative to that juror's ability to be uh, impartial, I think it leans towards granting a, a new trial. And again, this is a juror who was so reticent to testify uh, again about this questionnaire that that he had to be immunized uh, against prosecution in order to take the stand. Okay, final question on this particular topic. Now, if it if, if this does head back for a retrial, are her chances improved or hindered of winning the trial? The question about the retrial, who it would benefit, I, I think it's a fascinating one. Typically we think that retrials benefit the prosecution. Okay. But if you're already convicted <laughs> as Chalene Maxwell is, then it's a second free bite at the apple. But the reason why we think it generally benefits the prosecution is because the prosecution witnesses are usually sort of like cops and investigators uh, who the defense is able to depose before trial. So usually before, excuse me, before trial, the defense knows by and large, the evidence that the prosecution is going to present and the testimony that its witnesses are about to give. But the same can't be said for the prosecution. There's some murkiness, you know, behind what the defense uh, witnesses may say and the defense arguments and theory of the prosecution. That's more of a surprise to prosecutors than the prosecution uh, arguments are a surprise to the defense. So that's like if you retry the case, it's almost like, well, you're not going to come up with a completely new theory of the case. Certainly the evidence is going to be the same. Uh, so that that argues for um, advantage prosecution. But here's another kind of wrinkle in this whole story. Right after the prosecution uh, rested and, and, and Jelaine Maxwell was convicted, we see some of the names of the people who were like secret uh, defendant or, or sorry, secret witnesses because of their age at the time of the crimes uh, were allegedly were not allegedly 
proven now committed against them. But then afterwards, they went out and they went on TV, talked about settlements. Uh, and and so whether when they come back to court, if they come back to court, Mark, uh, in a reprosecution of Jillian Maxwell, and just to be clear, if the if their conviction is thrown out, I'm, I mean, I would bet anything that they will retry her to be sure. Uh, I think it's going to be a weaker case because there'll be more information about them. Just for instance, one one aspect is uh, uh, we we're, we're learning more through the civil trial of Alan Dershowitz and Virginia Jufre about roles that she may have undertaken to traffic people. Um, and she'd previously been you know thought of almost exclusively as a victim in the court's eyes. Uh, in any case, so um, now she wasn't a witness in the Jelaine criminal trial, and I think that's why. But one of the persons who uh, she may have uh, aided in trafficking uh, was. So it gets complicated. Uh, I mean, certainly to be sure, if you're a person who's convicted and you get a new trial, that's a great thing for you. Uh, and it's not a great thing if you have to reprosecute a trial that you already won. Uh, okay. So we will obviously uh, keep our eyes on it. And the final question I want to hit you with today, Scott, is the 65 Project. Could you give us a little bit of background on this and tell us why this is important? These are a bunch of Clinton regulars, especially and including David Brock, uh, who's made it his mission in life to agitate for and, and defend Hillary Clinton against any uh, enemy, foreign or domestic. And he's turned his guns on Trump's lawyers and basically has just declared that anybody who helped Donald Trump litigate the after election matters is going to be uh, hounded by him into oblivion, including complaints to their state bar committees and also just advertisements so that they be shunned culturally and professionally. It's the latest in uh, the bleeding edge of uh, being woke and trying to turn somebody into a canceled non-person. Now, this isn't just lawyers who work directly for Donald Trump, is it? This is lawyers who worked on causes that were relevant. On post-election efforts, I would say. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And so this idea that uh, lawyers should be targeting other lawyers who owe their clients a defense. That's right, isn't it? They owe their clients a defense. I'm waiting for them to start suing the people who printed up the Trump election signs for some kind of uh, <laughs> regulation on him. Like it's like any, any, anybody close to him or, or who, you know, helped him in any way uh, they're, they're going to go after it's, it's, it's all part of the sort of total war against, uh, against all things Trump from the Clinton side. Yeah, I think the real danger here is that you're creating a, a culture of destruction. And this, this might, in fact, be the 65 Project's goal. is It's to scare anybody who might want to represent a cause that is not Absolutely. only directly related to Donald Trump, but anything that runs afoul of the, the left-leaning uh, dominant ideology. Does that make sense? It not only makes sense, that's what's happening. That's why they're progressives and not liberals. They are illiberal. Scott's reported on this 65 project on the pages of LibertyNation.com. I recommend you all go and read it. And I want to thank you, Scott, for being here. Much appreciated. Cheers. Thank you, Mark. And that's almost it for this episode of Liberty Nation Radio here on the Radio America Network. I'd like to say a special thank you to today's guests, Lisa K. Donner, Andrew Moran, Dave Patterson, and Scott D. Casenza. And of course, to you at home for taking the time to join us here. My final thoughts to leave you with this week. It seems to me that we're living in an age of spin over substance, a time when it's more important to craft a positive narrative than to actually engage in substantive action. We see this in America where the fourth estate and the Biden administration appear to be 
crafting a grand epic battle that seeks to take its place in the annals of history alongside the Battle of Thermopylae. And while nothing should take away from the brave Ukrainian people engaged in a fight for their very survival, this seizing of opportunity to make a failing president appear the grand statesman leading the world in its response to Russian aggression smacks of little more than party political fiction. When the dust finally settles, the approved government narrative will be that Joe Biden saved the world. And any who dare speak against that proposition will be deemed to be parroting Russian propaganda. We've all seen this playbook dragged out time and time again. And perhaps it's time to just admit that first, we wouldn't be in this situation if it were not for these constant machinations. And second, perhaps most importantly, is that a large proportion of the world's media is more interested in presenting a good story that serves its ideological purposes than in presenting the actual truth to the people it's meant to serve. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.